Welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and this episode, in anticipation of where I want to go next week, we'll be working through how to read prophetic literature. Next week, I'll be doing a two-episode mini-series on the book of Hosea, which is one of the 12 so-called minor prophets. But before I dive into Hosea or any other prophetic literature, I want to equip us for that conversation. I've said before that every book of the Bible points toward Jesus, and the prophets are no different. His birth, his life, his death, his finished work on the cross, his resurrection, and his coming return are all described in vivid imagery throughout the books of the prophets. Sometimes the imagery is clear and familiar to us, like in everybody's favorite Christmas verse, Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or when Zechariah 9-9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Sometimes, though, the language is less familiar, but still equally pointing to our need for Jesus as Lord and Savior. Like Joel 3.18, which proclaims, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. My goal in this episode is to equip us to better read the hard-to-read prophetic books, to see the characteristics of Christ better throughout these books, and to better worship God as we meditate on these readings. Alrighty, so before we really dive in, let's play a little word association game. What comes to your mind when you hear a word like, Old Testament prophet. If you were playing Pictionary and you pulled the card Old Testament prophet, how would you draw that? If you're anything like me, you probably are picturing some old Israelite dude. Maybe he's bald, maybe he has a little priestly hat, but definitely with a long, long, like epically long beard, right? Maybe you were thinking of that guy lurking around the temple wearing priestly robes, addressing the masses with God's message. Or maybe you're picturing a guy with tattered clothes living in the slums of Jerusalem, standing on a soapbox shouting God's message at, like, bewildered passerbys. Well, all these images are true of some prophets. There is no one-size-fits-all Old Testament prophet. Outside of being a prophet of God, they come from different areas. They live different lifestyles, they speak to different target audiences over different time frames, and they speak to different events or eras. Thing one is that as we start to go through some prophetic literature, we should let the books we're reading construct the environment, not let our hearing of God's word be filtered by some preconceived image we have already generated in our minds. So what were the prophet's tasks? Their business card might have said prophet, but what did that entail? What were their job descriptions? Well, according to Jason DeRochi, The prophets were covenant ambassadors from the heavenly council. They were commissioned to call God's people back into relationship with their covenant king and to stand in the gap, interceding to God on behalf of his people. In short, they preached for God to the people and they prayed for the people to God. J. Alec Motier says, The task of the Old Testament prophet was to address the present in light of the future. The present only possessed seriousness or urgency because of what was going to happen next. 
So sometimes a prophet's job entailed speaking God's message to the people, and sometimes it involved speaking to God for the people. Sometimes prophets recalled past occurrences, sometimes they spoke of present conditions, and sometimes they spoke of future events. So thing two is to pay attention to both who is speaking and who they are speaking to. A couple more instances where we might have specific images in our head already are what comes to your mind when you hear the word prophetic literature in general. Like maybe you think end times or apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation. Maybe you just think about the familiar verses in Isaiah about Jesus suffering on the cross. What about when you hear the word Messiah? Maybe you connect that to Jesus automatically. Maybe you don't. But in prophetic literature, messianic references are any reference to the seed of woman, or the one from the line of Abraham, or the shoot of Jesse, or the king from the line of David, the one who would save God's people and usher in a new humanity. All of these references hyperlink to Jesus. If you've listened to the Matthew Study podcast that we've done, you've probably noticed the number of times that the gospel accounts pull directly from the Old Testament prophets. Some other words and themes you might hear come up are about this remnant, this surviving group of God's people, and Zion, a city that can sometimes mean ancient Jerusalem and sometimes reference the future new Jerusalem. Again, the bottom line is that, as Yoda once said, you have to unlearn what you have learned. Reading prophetic literature can be hard enough without having the waters already muddied because we are only looking through one specific filter. If we want to aim to see the glory of God and more and more characteristics of Christ revealed to us, we have to go in with ears to listen to what is actually being said by God. The prophetic books of the Bible are some of the least read books of the entire Bible. There are a lot of reasons for this, but one of the biggest ones is that there are challenges to reading them cover to cover. I want to cover some of those and to talk about how to start to overcome these challenges. The who behind the books is the first one. Here I don't just mean the image of the person vocalizing the words, but really about getting into who is speaking. Yes, the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, whoever, all are the authors. And yes, the Holy Spirit is at work within the biblical author at all times. But sometimes the words are from the prophet directly. Sometimes it's direct quotes from God the Father speaking when it says the Lord said. And sometimes it's the prophet writing down the words spoken by others in the narrative. All are equally important and equally divinely inspired. But knowing who is currently speaking helps us to follow along with what's being said. In the book of Isaiah, sometimes Isaiah himself is speaking. Sometimes it's the Lord directly speaking and sometimes it's a third party. Some of this contributes to the jumpy feeling behind the books, but paying attention to who is doing the speaking can really help make the dialogue more clear. In the book of Habakkuk, for instance, that book documents a back-and-forth dialogue between the prayers of Habakkuk and the responses from God to those prayers. If you forget which one is being quoted at the moment, then things can get weird fast. Or I guess I should say they'll go from weird to really weird fast. One way to overcome how hard prophetic books can be is to pause whenever you notice a change in the person speaking. And then make a note of that. I mean if you're two chapters into a monologue and you forget who is threatening to wipe out all of the land, things can get hairy. 
so slow down and try to remember who's speaking. Another challenge is the historical setting. Because Old Testament prophets exist in almost every portion of ancient Israel's history, different prophets can be speaking during drastically different historical contexts. Sometimes you feel like you need to have a PhD in ancient geography to know what's happening. For instance, what nations are the focus? Are the prophets addressing Israel or her enemies? Sometimes prophets are speaking while Israel is still one nation. Sometimes they're speaking while Israel is divided into two nations. Sometimes the prophets, like Daniel, are speaking while the nation of Israel is entirely in exile. But even knowing the nation that is the primary focus doesn't mean that there aren't prophecies to other nations also. The book of Amos is a great example of a prophetic book that talks about a lot of nations before circling back to its primary target nation. Another question related to the historical setting is who's the leader? Were they good leaders? Were they bad leaders? Were they terrible leaders? I'll use Isaiah as an example again, because Isaiah's ministry spans five different kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. One is good and then goes to bad. One is good but with some reservations. One is bad and very bad. One is good, eh, still good, and then he makes a boo-boo. And one is very, very bad. What's going on around that time frame? And was it a period of war or peace, famine or prosperity where the people happy or anxious is a big deal with understanding what the prophet might be proclaiming. Whenever I start to introduce a prophetic book, I always take some time to focus on the events and the locations. Usually the first verse or two of a prophetic book mentions the kings that were around during that time. So you can always search through the books of Kings and Chronicles to see where those kings come up. The kings from Isaiah 1 that I just listed are covered in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 21, and then again they're covered in 2 Chronicles 26 through 33. When I sit down to study Isaiah, I always read those couple chapters first just to get a reminder of what's happening, what's the context. The third challenge can be the timeline of events. When are the events written? When are the events described taking place? Is the prophecy fulfilled in the short term, in the long term? They don't always go linear. Events in a prophetic book can be jumpy to say the least. The famed theologian Martin Luther says that the prophets have a very strange way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make heads or tails of them or see what they are getting at. This whole idea isn't helped when some of the books don't follow a linear or a chronological pattern. It's like seeing a mountain range in the distance. Some of the peaks you might be able to tell are closer than others, but from standing on the ground far away, it's really hard to get an accurate assessment of how far apart they are, how wide are the valleys, how tall are the mountains, really. Occasionally we get milestones, like when books say within three years or within a year. And these help act as a map okay, this is really soon. Oh, okay, this is not not so soon. But often we don't get those milestones. There isn't really a super easy way to overcome this challenge. The best we can do is note the milestones we get, and then think through the ones we don't. Understanding always that the exact when behind something is not the primary purpose of any prophetic literature. The fourth one to make things harder, the prophets themselves, they do weird things. Sometimes when they speak of future timelines or when they're talking about current events. The prophets do weird things through their words and their actions. 
Ezekiel does some really bizarre sign acts during his prophecies of Israel's coming siege and destruction. Sometimes they name their children weird names. Isaiah is told to name his kid Mahar Shalhal Hashbaz. It means quick to plunder, swift to spoil. The kid's name literally means speed, spoil, haste, booty. It was a symbolic name. It it meant to describe the speed of the coming conquest that was going to befall God's people. But if you just read over it, it's confusing and it seems weird, and sometimes we get stuck on that. Sometimes we let the weirdness of an action cloud our understanding of the symbolism behind it. The last challenge I'll cover might actually be the one that trips us up the most. The prophets are largely unread and unfamiliar to us. Most people have never read all 66 chapters of Isaiah, or all the chapters in Ezekiel. With my small group, I like to play a little icebreaker sometimes, called Bible or Yoda, where I read off certain Bible verses or Yoda quotes, and people have to guess which one is which. Invariably, there are Bible verses that everyone knows, and some that everybody responds, wait, that's a Bible verse? The prophets are especially notorious for this. For instance, you've probably heard at some level the stories of Daniel and the lion's den, or Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish. Maybe you even memorized the end of Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But most people have not memorized the last verse of Isaiah. Isaiah 66.24 that says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Because of this, we have a tendency to focus on the verses we've heard of before, and we shy away from the others. We tend to cling to the familiar and the comfortable and to avoid or skim over confusing or foreign things. This is the exact opposite of what we should do. If something is unfamiliar, we need to reread it and pay more attention to it at times. These are all real challenges, and I'm not claiming reading the prophets is easy and it's light bedtime material. But if we make efforts to address the challenges, we can start to better overcome them. So what is our hope for trying to understand them? I just listed a ton of challenges and reasons why they might be harder to grasp. So what is the value in studying them? Well, I'm going to tell you just personally that of the books of the Bible that have helped me grow in my relationship with God and with other people, three of them are in the New Testament. John, Acts, and Revelation. And the other three are probably all minor prophets. Hosea, Jonah, and Amos. Amos was actually the first book of the Bible I read all the way through. Maybe Isaiah and Deuteronomy have snuck in there recently, but my point is that as I have made sense of them a little bit more, the prophets and the minor prophets particularly have given me a better window into who my Savior is, what he truly accomplished on the cross, And these books have become an incredible word into my life and what it looks like for me to truly be a disciple of Jesus. Alrighty, so thus far I've kind of focused on prophetic literature generically. But let's zoom in on the minor prophets specifically. I mean, what makes the minor prophets so minor? Well, it's not their context or their importance. They aren't minor, and so we're allowed to ignore them. Minor here does not mean unimportant. Mostly, minor just means short. They are, by and large, the shortest prophetic books we have in the Bible. There are 12 of them. In the original Hebrew Bible, they are all combined into one book, which was creatively titled the Book of the Twelve. 
we see them in our English Bibles as 12 individually titled books. In order, they are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. It's all the same material. Our Bibles just break them into 12 separate books to make it easier to follow. But knowing that the Hebrew groups them together should also underline to us the interconnectedness of all 12. There is debate about the arrangement of the minor prophets and how best to categorize each group of books. Jason DeRoshi has a breakdown categorizing them into three groupings, sin, punishment, or restoration type books. But don't miss it. All 12 of these books contain all three themes. Sin, judgment, and restoration can be found in each of the 12 prophets. While we're talking about this idea of themes, what are some other themes found in the minor prophets? Well, Israel's deviation from following the Lord is a huge theme. God's people abandoning him for other things and for other gods. This comes across as the sinfulness of God's people. This theme is prevalent in books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Nine of the twelve really, really dive into this theme. The day of the Lord is also big. It shows up in Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. It's one of the major themes in Joel, so focusing on that can help put together other portions of the book and put those portions in perspective. God's love and his calling. This is a huge theme in Hosea, which we'll cover next week. But it also plays a big role in Joel and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah. The coming Messiah is obviously a huge theme. Every book points toward humanity's need for Jesus' coming. And then it points forward to his arrival, his accomplishment, and his second coming. While books like Zechariah just echo with passages directly pointing to Jesus, it is not alone. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Malachi also have passages that are directly tied to the coming Messiah. A lot of the minor prophets also have quotes directly in the gospel accounts. Quotes that are pulled out of the minor prophets and put in the gospel accounts for context. And it's not just the Messiah himself that's mentioned through the Twelve, but also that salvation comes through faith in a Savior. That shows up a lot, too. God's mercy toward both Israelites and also the nations are on display throughout these books. Jonah and Nahum are, are separate minor prophets, but they're tied together to tell the story of God's relationship with the city of Nineveh at two separate points in time and culture. It's also helpful to note that these themes are not unique to the Minor Prophets, or even the Old Testament. Obviously, Jesus the Messiah shows up in the New Testament also. But God's people being tempted to run to other things shows up a lot too. The day of the Lord is mentioned as a day that will come in First and Second Thessalonians, as well as in Second Peter. My point here, before I close out, is that the Minor Prophets speak to the Gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They speak to matters of love and faith and salvation and repentance and eternal life. We just have to be willing to have eyes to see and ears to hear that message. I look forward to next week when we dive into the book of Hosea. Hopefully this episode helped us get ready for tackling the minor prophets. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the English Standard Version or ESV Bible Translation. Until next time, I love you all.